Hang in there, it is. Smiley Kaufman for 61. Wow. I'm Smiley Kaufman, and this is The Smiley Show. Hello, friends. I'm Charlie Hume, and I'm, of course, here with Smiley Kaufman, and we will get right to it with a breakdown of the Charles Schwab Challenge, where Emiliano Grillo gets his second PGA Tour win, first since 2015. Smiley, let's start right there. You were at Colonial Country Club all week long, a second straight week after we saw low scoring at the PGA Championship, where a single-digit number won. What did you see that Emiliano Grillo did well this week to win the tournament? Yeah, well, first off, congratulations to Emiliano. He has uh, always been a uh, considered to me a very good, great friend of mine, um, somebody that I've always had a very good relationship with. We've played junior golf together. I've watched him grow up, and he's always been an incredible golfer. And he inspired me to win my PGA Tour event because he won the week before. And I was like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And, and then we kind of battled that whole year in a rookie of the year race that he eventually won. And he played incredible golf. And it's crazy to me that he hasn't won more. Um, he's had definitely some opportunities. If you would have asked me if, in junior golf who was going to win, you know, 10 times on the PGA Tour, I would have said that guy. I mean, his golf swing has always been one that you just watch and you said, this guy is so pure. And he's got so much talent. Um, I will say the 18th hole, that was one of the crazier things I've ever seen, Charlie, with that ball in the what was that just a waterway and it's just <laughs> i guess maybe a rain gutter of some sort and just the slow trickle back and i was watching it without sound originally so i was trying to kind of figure out first of all which direction the ball was rolling because it, it at first I'm like yeah. is, is it, it rolling forwards because let's just see how far this thing goes can we get it right up next to the green but of course it was going backwards and uh the fans the fans took great delight in uh tracking that thing all the way back until it finally stopped but then you know, has to take a drop and hit one off the cart path. And it actually looked like he had a good look in after that punch out, you know, with kind of a wedge there, but just hit it a little bit further past the pin than maybe he would have liked to and ends up with a double. Yeah. Any way you slice it up, making a six when you got a two shot lead is, is going to be one that if he didn't win, he would look back on and think, how in the heck could I not get it in five shots on that hole? Because you, you have a ton of room to hit it left. If, you're not going to be able to get it on the green, but you can punch out. All you can't do there is, is hit it where he hit it. And so he was very lucky to survive uh, Adam Shank not making that putt on 18 because it was a very holdable putt. Um, then they get in the playoff, a couple of good looks. And then uh, that 16th hole, I mean, he, he was a foot away from that ball ending up in the bunker. And that bunker shot would have been very difficult. And, Fun fact, I've actually made a hole-in-one on that hole at 16 and hit the same crap shot that Emiliano kind of hit. <laughs> and he'll, it, you're only, you really are aiming kind of between that flag and the edge of the green, but he was further right of the edge of the green. He just kind of got a great kick, and that uh, there's a t tremendous amount of slope right to left and kind of back, and that ball funneled it right to about five feet, and uh, you know, Shank actually hit an incredible chip shot, by the way. That was a 10 out of 10 from that downhill slope. Uh, bumping around out of the rough there, the commentator said as we were watching it, just incredible stuff to get it as close as he did. Oh, my because, God. You know, it, it's, it's hard to not, you know, if you're going to play that shot, either get it caught up in the rough or do something where you land it too far and it's off the front of the green. So amazing stuff. But, of course, Grillo makes the birdie there and ends the tournament on the, on the second playoff hole. We can get back to the golf course here. They had that play so firm and fast. 
for bent greens, they almost look brownish purple. You know, when you're looking at the green surfaces from the fairway, to me, there was no green in them. And when you see that in bent grass, you're thinking, oh, my goodness. But when you walked on the surface, they were so firm and had just the imperfect. You could see the imperfections because of it's like it's almost like a uh, uh, a waffle uh, frying pan you put on the green. And, and it, that's seriously what your footmark looked like when you walked. So it was man, it was it was difficult conditions they played in. They had control of the golf course the entire week. The superintendent did because we had zero rain, which made it to where they could do whatever they wanted with the place. And they made it play so hard because they're ripping it up tomorrow. These are unusual conditions, right? Because it is not often that a golf course, you can push it to its absolute limits or even past its limits because tomorrow morning, Gil Hans and the cavemen are coming in, ripping this thing up. And, and so you can, you know, there's really no need to try to have a, a balance there with the greens and making sure they don't get, get killed or, you know, get, get too dry because, you know, it, it doesn't matter as of, as of Monday morning. Yeah, no, it was, uh, <laughs> they had it going, man. It was, uh, it was fun to watch a golf course play under 7,000 yards and have it play so difficult. Uh, the one guy that you look at, <laughs> look back at, it's like, man, Scotty's probably sitting there tonight. Like how the heck did I not win that tournament today? Thinking like I could have easily posted uh, something around nine, 10 under. And, and it was kind of the same thing that we've talked about with Scotty. It's he's hitting it unbelievable. And it's hard to discredit, you know, how successful he's been and how the amount of top 14 or 12s that he's had 15 in a row now. And you don't want to dog the guy, but I just keep on wanting him to win so much more because he's hitting it at a level that we've never seen. Well, we have seen it, but we don't typically see. (laughs) Well, perhaps the biggest story of the week leading into it was a guy who was not around for the weekend And that was, of course, Michael Block. This is a story that probably had four, five, maybe ten cycles that have happened since the last time we discussed it on this podcast, recapping his amazing week at the PGA Championship. We had him earning the sponsor exemption into the Charles Schwab Challenge. We had an appearance on a podcast that was received maybe not so well in the golf media sphere. We had him going out and shooting 81 in his first round and eventually missing the cut and having some emotional post-round press conferences. A lot to get to here, but I'd start first with you were part of the coverage of Michael Block's group on Thursday, and I just wonder what it was like being on the course with him and just taking in all that surrounded him. Well, Charlie, I if you would have told me two weeks ago that I was going to be at Colonial and following Michael Block around on the Thursday round, I would have told you you were crazy. And I still feel that way. Still just wild to me. Uh, The night before, I was expected uh, to go with Victor Hovland. And then the next day, I was uh, told I was going with Michael Block. And I just, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that. You know, a guy coming off of almost winning a major championship and for someone like Michael Block, who nobody heard of until uh, this past week, unless you were a a total golf nut for him to steal those headlines and to go on all these, this media tour. And, you know, the week obviously was, it was storybook. And I I don't think we'll ever really see anything quite like it, but I was there and I'll tell you the crowds for Michael 
were as big as I saw for Scotty Scheffler um, and on that Thursday. And, and by the end of the day, it, it, it had dwindled down a little bit. But on that back nine, pretty much any green that had the grandstands around it, you know, he was he was uh, getting a pretty big ovation. And the golf for him that day, he was all over the place. I'm telling you, just he wore his emotions on his sleeve. He looked like a guy that was just flat out exhausted. And you can question his game. You can question um, just kind of how he handled himself, the things he said. Uh, but from what I saw, he was a guy that had a, you know, he found lightning in a bottle. That's the only way to describe it for him from what I saw with this golf game to finish 15th in a major. Um, it's incredible really. Cause for what I saw, I saw some good stuff, but I didn't necessarily see 15th in a major. That means he did everything to the best of his ability. And we were talking earlier and about, uh, Michael's inability to hit it high or have all these shots. I know he's 46 years old, so we're not expecting him to be, you know, some 19, 20 year old who can hit it high and spin the ball, but still it, it was flat. It wasn't very high and it wasn't much spin. And and I, I was seeing that all day. So, and that, that kind of goes into the major championship. How did he get it done? Well, he was second in driving accuracy at the PGA championship and had a dream putting week. So Hats off to him. The story was crazy. I mean, did you watch much of the coverage Thursday? I did. I, I enjoyed uh, your contributions as much as we were able Thank to you. kind of stay. <laughs> there was, there were, I, I thought that there, there was, I think there was one line in particular where you were talking about, um, you know, the juxtaposition of Michael's week at Oak Hill versus, you know, he was in the midst of a really tough round on Thursday and you said something to the effect of, you know, hey, you know, look at me. I was out on tour, and now I'm here holding a microphone. And that's just how golf goes sometimes. <laughs> and and uh, the thing to me that I thought was interesting watching Thursday's round is, and you noted the driving accuracy thing. And and that's obviously, you know, if you hit the ball straight and in the fairway, even if you're hitting longer clubs, you're giving yourself a better chance to, you know, shoot a score, right? And when he wasn't doing that, and he was giving himself a lot of long clubs into those greens, you know, any person out there who thinks, who fancies himself as a, a scratch golfer, a plus handicap, who thinks, you know, hey, I, I could, I could maybe get it done in a PGA Tour event, just go replay that round that Michael Block played mm -hmm. because I can't even, there were so many times where I watched his approach shots hit the front of those incredibly firm greens and just roll all the way to the back or off the green. He's left with a, you know, a tough, sometimes short-sided chip. And to me, I think that's the, it, it it was an it was a light bulb moment of sorts where you're like the P, PJ Tour pros are playing a different game. The length yeah. they hit it, the, the height they hit it, the amount of spin they can impart on the ball when they need to. It's just these courses are set up for just a a, a different sport, really. So I I you know and that's more on the the golf itself piece. And, and I'd like to continue just on that train before we kind of diverge into some of the other stuff that happened around Michael this week. But from what you saw on Thursday. Um, there were a lot of his, I guess you'd call him as trademark theatrics of playing to the crowd and talking to people. Do you think that that detracted from the golf that he was trying to play to do well in the tournament? Or was it more of, he was already cooked at that point. He wasn't hitting the ball well, and he might as well kind of play to the crowd and try to enjoy it a little bit. It's a good question. I definitely noticed the theatrics a bit. Uh, I think he 
was enjoying himself as much as he could. And I think that's why people like him. And I think he realizes I don't need to go into a, uh, into a shell out there, even though I'm playing bad, still try to, you know, enjoy the fans and um, just enjoy playing at colonial. He's never played there. He's always wanted to play there. So I, I guess if you look at it that way, he was just, you know, not playing good and figured might as well try to have a little bit of fun. But yeah, he, he did come up to me on the 13th hole and we made eye contact. He walked over, shook his hand, told him congrats. And he said, is there ever, you know, a time when you're playing golf where you, just nothing is going, going right? And I was like, yeah, man, like <laughs> it happened so much out here. But no, I've, I, I've said on coverage, like you said, that's yeah, I'm holding a microphone now. Of course, I know that golf can go <laughs> go the wrong way. But, you know, I, what I was impressed with with Michael, I, I think he's a good putter. I think he has the ability to hit it straight. He didn't hit it necessarily straight that day. He's he made comments saying he had a world class short game on uh, Bob Menery's podcast. And I didn't see that. And I, I saw some technique issues in his in his pitching. Personally, I thought he had a lot of um, when I see a lot of dipping in the knees, to me, that's you have to have a lot of timing and, and you're not able to have a ton of shots around the green. So I don't understand that take. Uh, obviously, every time his when I when I was out there, if his ball was, you know, in the fringe where I would say 90 percent of the guys would pitch it, he brought the putter out. And I'm thinking that's that's kind of odd, you know, and and then the one shot to see uh what his world class short game was all about he was in front of a bunker on 15 a very difficult shot i would say 9 to 10 out of 10 as far as difficulty and he i, I thought over it before he hit it i said he's either going to chunk this in the bunker or bone it over the green and he chunked it in the bunker then he boned the next bunker shot over the green and and that's where it, the wheels were already off but then they really started to fall off you noted the Bob Mentory podcast, which is something that I want to get to, because uh, I think that that was uh, maybe one of the things that kind of set off the perhaps downturn or the turning on Michael Block in a lot of ways. But a couple of interesting observations you made there that I want to kind of touch on, especially the nature of his short game, because I think the, the final highlight we have of Michael Block at Oak Hill is that up and down at 18. Crazy to good. Make the, just incredibly good. And, and so I, I wonder from your perspective, um, the things you noticed about his short game, you know, is, is there, do you see other guys on tour now who have a home cooked short game that doesn't necessarily make sense, but works. And, and, you know, if that is the case, does that present like consistency issues where a guy can, in Michael Block's case, do it in a big moment when the pressure's on, just kind of make it work, even though you're looking at his technique and saying, eh, I don't know if that's going to work long-term. But then you kind of have a, a letdown week or, or come down week, you know, more accurately at, at Colonial and, he, and he's lost the juice and he's already playing bad. And it's and some of that stuff starts to break down and create issues. The difference, I think, would be at Colonial, the times where I, I noticed that just the technique wasn't going to match up. It was from tight lies in the fairway. And when I saw him pitching well at uh, the PGA Championship, it was at a rough. And mm. it's a totally different deal. You can... You can you can get away with a lot of um, your levels changing and your knees dipping and your and your chest kind of being back behind the golf ball because you it, you don't have to re rely on that contact because of the the heavy rough. So to me, 
the the 18th up and down was insane for him but it was on an upslope and for him that actually the technique that he does have in his pitching it actually sets up okay for him but my mind was kind of spinning when you said which which tour pro has a kind of a manufactured short game and I couldn't come up with any because pitching you have to it's it's the one part of your game you know we see different types of golf swings how guys swing the golf club but with pitching there are some set of rules with pitching and any golfer knows that you have to have clean contact (laughs) and you can't chunk it your low point can't be behind the golf ball so typically you don't really see a lot of different crazy stuff with the PGA Tour pros when they set up over a pitch or flop shot that they're not going to have crazy loops in their in their pitching it's going to be pretty on plane for the most part to come back to what you noted before uh Bob Menery's uh Ripper Magoo podcast side note what a heck of a name for a podcast Ripper Magoo <laughs> I was like I have no I don't know what the genre of this is I don't know what we're doing here but uh here we are to sum up the quotes, which I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast and the majority of people have already watched this clip or, or seen the quotes, the, the the summation of them is basically Michael Block says, if he could play from where Rory McIlroy hits his ball off the tee, he'd be one of the best players in the world. Um, I just wonder what your take is on that because mm. it struck me as not a great thing to say uh, you know, coming off your, your kind of Cinderella story, but at yep. the same time, it's like, you probably don't get to where you are at the PGA championship. If you don't have some level of irrational confidence in your golf game. I think so. I, I just think he was coming off. First off, he did 30 interviews. Uh, I, this is from when he finished the PGA championship until when he teed it up on Thursday, he had done 30 scheduled interviews. That is an insane amount of media to do and i imagine that by the end of that or whenever that interview was that you can probably feel pretty confident yourself because all these people are pumping you up and asking questions i think there's no telling you know how tired he could have been during the interview how you know because you're just discrediting how good rory mcroy is at the rest of his game and i watch rory Week in and week out, you take if if he was an average hitter, it wouldn't matter. The guy's on; he's still an elite. You know that's his superpower is, is how far he can hit it. But dude, he's an unbelievable iron player too. Like let's not let's not if 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 Rory had to hit it from where Michael Block hit it from, he'd beat the crap out of him. And I could tell you that confidently. So I if the shoe was on the other foot, and if that question was asked <laughs> to. uh to Rory, if you had to play from where Michael Block played from, I I would say he 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 could give him four or five aside and and still feel pretty comfortable. I wonder how that impacts Michael Block going forward because obviously he still has that Canadian Open exemption and of course he's in the PGA Championship next year of Valhalla. And what you heard at least at the beginning of the week or even at the PGA Championship were a lot of tour pros who were loving the story. Rory included. Rory was genuinely touched by yeah. what went on in that final round. We and all were. Do those comments sour his perception amongst tour pros a little bit? Or I wonder if guys look at that and say, hey, man, I've done press conferences before or interviews where my words have gotten twisted a little bit. You know, maybe he didn't say it the best way, but I get what he was trying to say. I do. I think it probably has rubbed a, a good amount of people the wrong way. And, you know, 
it's tough because the week after everybody wants the swan song, they want the story to keep on going and him playing bad. Now it's, it kind of discredits his big week. And I don't want that to be the case. I think what he did at Oak Hill was tremendous. It was something that we're going to always remember the fact that he made a hole in one with Rory on the 15th hole coming down the stretch. And he's trying to qualify to get into the PGA the next year. You just can't ride it up any better. I will say the interviews, I think by the end, the things he was saying, it just rubbed a lot of folks that I talked to uh, kind of the wrong way. And, you know, when he got out there and teed it up on Thursday, you know, he played really well in the bright lights, but I think he figured out what these guys face in week in, week out, these stars that have to play in front of the, the cameras every single week. And guess what? When you're playing bad, there's nowhere to hide. And he had, I, when I'm sitting there watching him on the back nine, he was doing his best to to get through it all, but he had nowhere to hide. Those cameras were not going to leave him. And it's, I've been there before. It's a, it's a very lonely place. I know he had a smile on his face, but he's, he's played 26 events on the PGA tour. I didn't even know that heading into the week. I figured it would have been his first or second start. He's played, he's only made two cuts on the tour. And so that changed the storyline a little bit for me for the fact that he's done this a lot and not to discredit anything he did. It just, to me, to play on the PGA Tour week in, week out, anybody can have a good week, but to do, let's see what you do the next week. And that's why playing on the PGA Tour is so difficult is, is that you have to bring such a high level of play week in, week out. To zoom out a little bit, because the part of the story that, for me at least, I found alternatively fascinating, uh, amusing, uh, perhaps depressing at times, was just the way that we all reacted to what was happening with Michael Block. And I'm not necessarily faulting any network or channel for pursuing a story that was obviously interesting and captivating for the audience that they were trying to serve, but I just wonder what you make of all that we saw in terms of the conversation that was had around Michael Block. What's that famous quote in the Dark Knight Batman? You either die the hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I think it was very apt for Michael Block this week. I think I saw that a couple of times and I'm thinking, man, that's <laughs> we're not too far off there. And Michael seems like a great guy, but it's social media, man. It's five, six years ago. If Michael Block does this at Oak Hill, who knows if he's built up quite to this extreme that we've seen. The fact that there's been a somebody in the PGA club professional that has finished better than 15th, they've actually finished 11th, and I don't even know who it is. Did we celebrate it? Probably not. It probably wasn't even a big story. So why was it that big of a story? It's because of all of the media that he did that week. And the story just continued to go and go and go um, in this era that we're in now, social media can be very up and down and he's going to make a lot of money because of the social media hyping him up. But at the same time, the brand showing up in colonial, not playing well, it's, it's hard now because you've just built yourself up to be, wait, this guy can play on the PGA tour. He can compete with these guys. He even says he can compete with these guys, but it's not easy to, to hold the media's 
microphone to say all those things and say them for 30 plus interviews and then have to go put that tee in the ground and realize, oh, wait, this game's still pretty hard. I thought a lot this week of your conversation with Justin Thomas. And by the way, for those who have not listened to that conversation, it's in the feed right now. It's fantastic. And when you get to that spring break section, you can hear a lot of JT's thoughts on social media and the way it's changed in the last, you know, five, six, seven years. But I, I thought of that because, you know, part of this is, you know, you can't change it back. Like all you can really do is reminisce and be like, man, I, I remember the way it was. And I kind of missed that. I, I just wonder does, does our behavior change for Cinderella stories like this in the future? If there's another Michael Block in the future, you know, or, or are we kind of, is this, is this kind of what, what it is from now on, you know, of just the, you know, a, a very polarized reaction to things that happen and there's no real room for nuance. I mean, because to me that feels like a pretty depressing reality and I don't know how we get out of that, of that sort of lane. Well, as far as golf goes and, what I expect to, if we see a situation like this ever again, I don't, I don't think you can recreate what we saw, which is why it was celebrated so much. But as we move forward, I still can't compare it to anything. And I don't know if maybe it's a Monday qualifier, whatever it is. I All I feel like the PGA Tour is doing is we're going to less players playing in events, the big events, and less of these underdog stories. So celebrate it while we have it, because all we're going to get to watch on TV is really good golf. And it's it won't be quite as much of some random, you know, 20-year-old or whoever, uh, uh, or just a long journeyman taking down John Rahm on the 18th hole. That would be a similar type of crazy storyline i just don't think we're gonna see that on the pga tour that much moving forward now we, we very well could i just don't anticipate it does that make sense at all to you it makes sense in that we should kind of appreciate what the story is for what it is but i think something remains there you know and, and again i'm not calling out any media entity or, or television network specifically because you know they're just doing what what they're paid to do oftentimes or what their passion is doing is here's something that's happened in the world of golf you follow me for a reason i'm here to offer my opinion on it you know, even the people who took issue with the whole michael block scenario it's like I, I found a little bit of irony that people kind of instead of celebrating michael block saying well why are these people tearing this down it's like so wait you're saying that people should be allowed to like what they like but people who don't like things can't say that they don't like them. You know, that, that just yeah. felt like a little bit interesting to me. So th that's, that's all by way of saying is that I just, I, I feel like whether it's this type of story or something entirely different, the way we seem to have these conversations in today's day and age remains the same. It's very polarized and, and maybe I'm just shaking my hand at, you know, like an old man of just oh, like, yeah. it's something that's never going to change. But I, I just wonder how we get to a place where, these things don't feel as bad as they do when it's meant to be a uplifting, heartwarming story. Well, we'll probably see Michael Block again in less than two weeks at the RBC Canadian Open. And we'll close the show with a preview of this week's event, the Memorial. But before we get to that, I want to do something a little different this week. And it's only related to golf in the sense that this is how I get to the events I cover. Airports. It's It's got to be talked about. And 
what makes an airport a good airport in your opinion? And there's so much different criteria to get into of what people like in certain airports and what people don't like in certain airports. And everybody's so opinionated on it. So why shouldn't we decide what our most important criteria is of an airport? When I think about an airport, I think about this thing like start to finish. And I don't I don't know if you do this, but I break it down to like <laughs> if I'm going to an airport, I'm figuring out what my airline carrier is and I'm figuring out like okay, what what terminal is that within the airport? And then I'm looking up the parking deck and I and I'm looking at like a map of the parking deck as oh, it relates to not, the airport. I'm not a map guy. I'm not a map guy. I am no cartographer either, uh but at the same time I will look at that and be like, okay, this is where I need to park my car. So that the amount of time that I'm spending walking from that car into the terminal is, is <laughs> the shortest amount possible. Yeah. We're opposites there. I, I, I'm a, <laughs> I feel it out as I go. And I, I would say as far as parking goes for me, like an airport has to have for me to consider it a good airport, the rental car area Ooh. has to be connected to the airport to where I don't have to have to hop on one of those stupid buses. It's it's such a key component. It's like, okay, you get your bags and then you just walk across the street to get your bag or to get your rental car and you're in your car and you're out of there. That to me makes an airport a good airport. And that's honestly it sounds terrible, but that's probably one of the highest category like criteria things for me on the list. Like, what would be your number one as far as, like, this airport has to have this? You know, it, it's all, it's almost an intangible. Like, parking's a part of it. Like, my my biggest – I'm either out on this airport or in on this airport is how fast can I get through security? Oh, yeah. I, I'm yeah, a yeah. highly anxious person. Like, and I you like have TSA? To, I have TSA pre-check. I do. Okay. But even, but even that in certain airports, like, have you ever been to an airport where – you're like you're ti- you're back timing it out. You're like if I get here at this time. And by the way, I, I would like to hear from you on the back end of this. How early you like to arrive at airports? I, think that's a- <laughs> I'm, I am a, I, I can go inside of an hour and feel comfortable. Wow. But sometimes okay, so that that underscores the point. Sometimes you get to an airport and you're thinking I'm good with TSA PreCheck, and the TSA PreCheck line is just as long as a regular line. I know it's 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 happening more at the bigger airports. So people that are listening that travel out of New York, LA, that's, this would be their number one is how probably how long it gets through security for them. To me, it's never been an issue. I've never had issue with TSA pre-check. I've never waited more than 15, 20 minutes on a bad day. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a safe, I always try to build in 20 minutes for security. Even if I know it's TSA pre-check and I can breeze through in two minutes then that's just extra time on the back end. But Wait, I are, get, are you a two-hour guy? I am not a two-hour guy. <laughs> okay. I, I, will say, I will say this has changed since uh, my wife and I had our son. You, know, you oh, got to build in much more time. That's a different deal, man. Yeah, I, I'm just saying if it's just you going. If it's ju- And there are two things that, can, that impact how, how early I get there. One is obviously my son. Second is am I checking golf clubs? Because – that's the other part of some of these airports where oh, it's, hey, it, when you have to take your bag to another your golf bag to like the yes. oversized thing. Yeah, that's that. I don't like that. Well, and it's a total cluster because you got to, you know, I wish there was like a manual that came with these airports where 
you're like, hey, at this airport, even if you pay for your check bag ahead of time, you have to get in that 45 minute line to get your bag tag to get the thing. Cause then it's like, okay, well now I got to add in a lot more time on the front end. Or there have been times like, like uh, this just absolutely drove me nuts one time RDU where I showed up and I waited in that whole line and I got to the end and they were like, Oh no. Yeah. You could have just gone and printed out your bag tag and walked over to the short little line and they would have just scanned your bag tag. And then you could have taken it over to the oversized baggage thing. And I was like, no one thought to, like tell me that mm. at any point in time, but no, no one's trying to help you at an airport. Like you're just, you're uh, kind of fending for your own out there. Yeah. And I will say that as far as wait time, as far as lines go, these sky lounges now, you can wait 20, 30 minutes to get into one of these. They're way overpopulated now. Are and you a sky lounge guy? I am a sky lounge guy. That's uh, so nice. Humble brag. I'm not, and... <laughs> I'm not. And I'm, I'm so envious. Well, there's, it's all depending on what day of the week you're traveling, what time of the day you're traveling. You know, if you're going on a Monday morning, those sky lounges are going to, the line's going to be long and it's going to be so many people in there. You can't even find a place to sit. Those things have gotten way too overcrowded. Uh, but if those, if the sky, if I don't have enough time to go to the sky lounge, the other criteria that I would say is of utmost importance to me. Okay. Is what is the food situation in the airport? Specifically, do they have a Chick-fil-A? That's interesting. Cause like I'm, you know, I, I I'm I'm my goal is to get in and out of the airport as fast as possible, but not to the degree where it's gonna make me anxious. And so with that in mind, would it be nice if I have a little bit of extra time and I can sit down, like have a bite to eat, or you know, have a have a coffee, have a beer? Absolutely. But it's not like a make or break thing. It's like if I get there and all I can do is go to that like generic place where they upcharge you 200% on all the items and get like a bottle of water or Powerade, it's like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll do it. Fine. You know, it's like not the end of the world for me. Are you the guy that stands when they, when they say we're boarding in 10, 15 minutes, are you the guy already standing there? Not really, man. Eh, I know, like, right? Sound like you're the guy standing there. <laughs> I I don't get up until the last until my thing's called. I sit until till the end. But there's always that group of twelve dudes that are sitting there ready to rock. Don't you worry about overhead space at all? Nah, no? man, I ain't worried about that. <laughs> it's, we're all getting on that dang plane. I, I if I most of the time I just have my backpack. I've just started bringing a carry on on just a one week golf channel show. Mm. And I, I even then I, I still don't. I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> I kind of want to sum up the airport. Yes. Uh, criteria. It seems that we settled in on that for you. Security lines are important. That would be probably yeah. close to number one and figuring out if parking situation is because you're a guy that likes to have everything point A to point B. So you're, you're a guy that goes, you plan it all out. You got to be parked close. So if the parking's a bad situation, then the, then the security. And then from there, is, is there an issue after security line or no? We're nominally a golf podcast here. We talk a lot about, you know, strokes gained, things like that. <laughs> I'm minutes gained parking through security. So that encompasses okay. <laughs> where, where can I park? How long is it going to take me to get into the terminal? What does my check-in process look like, both for if I just have carry-on bags, but if I also have to check bags? What does that security line look like, the amount of time it gets me to get through there? Once I once I make it through security, 
big exhale. You could have okay. anything. You could have no food, all the food in the world, anything. Like it just it doesn't matter. It's like I'm through, and as long as you can get me on that flight and it's gonna take off, we're gonna get home, I'm great. I you start from the beginning, I start from the end. I start with the rental car being connected to the airport, and then I go back to am I at an airport that typically has delays? And then I go back from there is what am I eating at the airport? So that to me, we're kind of on different, we're on different experiences. We, if we travel together, we'd have it all covered. <laughs> I can do all we, the front end. That's a hell of a four end. ball right there, man. I'm <laughs> it all dialed from start that's to finish. A, a ham and egg travel combo. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Um, Ooh, one other thing. Yeah. It's all coming to me. Yeah. Charger ports. That is so oh, yes. to me. Charging ports is so important. In the airport. And, and on the plane, on the plane. <laughs> and they never work on the plane. Never. And that's it's so frustrating when you get one that works on a plane. You're like, oh man, this is this is some good stuff here. This is this is a dang good plane. They also the other thing you got to think about. I I don't really. It's not a big factor for me, but some people feel very strongly about restrooms in an airport if they're clean or not, or just. I I typically don't ever really I go to the restroom at an airport i stay away from it but some people that's something that that it's they can't miss it so i've talked to a couple people they said restrooms is important but it was not a factor for me i didn't really care i automatically assume every airport restroom is going to be an absolute cesspool and it just start, work from there like if, you, so if you're, it's your expect expectations are low yeah if you're operating above cesspool fantastic i'm probably going to look back <laughs> on your restroom fondly but most of the time you go in there and it's like every stall is occupied by some guy's been sitting in there for 35 minutes the place smells absolutely <laughs> awful and you're like how can i just get in and out of this place as fast as humanly possible i think we covered most i, I guarantee you I i'm going to so. be flying tomorrow night and i'm going to be <laughs> thinking about there's something that I miss. If you're listening to this podcast, can you please tweet at me or Charlie and let us know if we missed anything? Because I think there's everybody has their own experiences at the airports that what is important to them, what's not important to them, what their favorite airport is, what's not. I know my favorite. Uh, we, we didn't really get into what your favorite airport is of all time. Mine's uh, I'm going to go with either Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul airport. It's one of my favorites or, uh, I really like Detroit too. Those are two of my favorites. That's interesting. I don't think I've been in either of those airports that I can recall. But I will give two shout outs to airports that that uh, I think are worth noting. One is I think people make out LaGuardia to be a lot worse than it actually it's is. Better now. I think LaGuardia is a fantastic airport, and they I know that it. that's it, they they redid it in a lot of areas. But even before, I mean, maybe that was because where I was living in New York, I could get there in like fifteen minutes, and there it was, was just some... like great. Man, before they redid that uh, the Delta one, it was kind of it was pretty grungy, man. I don't, I'm not, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you you had the that's that's the best take in the world, but but they did just spend a bunch it's of money, it's and it's really, I think it's way better than it used to be. Well, and, and the other one is I would like to shout out uh, the Hattiesburg, Mississippi airport. That is what? one of the most quaint, what? just the light little world. airports, and uh, least favorites. Ooh, um. That's a great question. What's the one in uh, Newark? I feel like it's a terrible yeah, airport. It's not good. That's not a good airport. scene is brutal. I don't yeah. love LA. I don't love LA. Um, There's like that one corridor of LAX that I feel like everyone has to go to to fly cross country. Yeah, and great. it's maybe the worst place on earth. Miami can be a mess. Miami can be a mess. It can be. Yeah. I, I've, 
the walk between terminals can take 20 yeah. to 25 minutes at times. And, uh, I don't like Charlotte. Uh, I don't know. Charlotte don't has know. the rocking chairs though, man. Yeah, that's that's not of my favorite. Charlotte. Big rocking um, chairs of the window. W- one airport that I think is a little underwhelming considering the size of how popular the city is, is Nashville. I don't think oh, that airport is as, as nice as what kind of the progression of the city is and how much travel they get. I would say Nashville's a little underwhelming as far as just, well, it's not really as nice of an air. And they may have changed it since I've been there, but uh, I wasn't impressed. I've never even been to Nashville. And so therefore I've not flown into Nashville. Maybe who knows, maybe the fall installment of the Owahali bucket club. I hope I said that <laughs> right. <go>. We might <laughs> be there. If, if you need a caddy, I'm great at carrying a wedge, man. I'll, uh, that one wedge. I'll make sure that thing is as clean as it could possibly be. Let's go. The only thing I'm going to leave you with on, on airports. I just want you to do some research on okay. the conspiracy theories with the Denver, Denver airport. It's, it's my favorite. I'm so glad you brought this up. It's my favorite conspiracy theory that exists. Because <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And I remember walking. I remember the thing that stood out to me before I knew about the conspiracy theory is walking through the section where there's like that New World Order mural of sorts. You know, like yeah. that insane mural. And I just remember thinking, huh, I'm all for commissioning the arts and, and things that are, you know, that add artistic value. But like, this is, seems like a strange thing to put in airport. Yeah, no, there's there's some there's some fishy stuff going on at the Denver Wild. airport. <laughs> we we got to dig underneath that airport. There's something underneath that airport. Yeah, that's nah. all I'm gonna say. Do your research. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I'm just gonna leave you leave you with that. If you've never heard of the conspiracy theories with the Denver airport, it's uh, it's interesting. Well, Smiley, that was a uh, fairly robust discussion covering lots of airport topics. And, of course, that won't be the last you'll hear on this because you'll have lots of travel the rest of this year covering events both domestic and international. So we look forward to updates from all of those various airports that you land in. But uh, Absolutely. we, we got to get to the next event on the schedule, which is uh, another designated event on the PGA Tour, and it is uh, the Memorial uh, Muirfield Village. And so this week we've got – 15 of the top 20 uh, in the official world golf rankings in the field. And, and that, that number is even skewed a little bit because really the only healthy PGA Tour members that are skipping it are Max Homa and Tony Finau. So just starting off there, what are you most looking forward to this week at this venue? Well, it was the event I always looked forward to as a player. Uh, when people would ask me, what was your favorite PGA Tour event? And you couldn't say the Masters. I said, uh, obviously, the, the Masters, you know, is, is a major. So they said, what's your favorite PGA Tour event? And I would say uh, the Memorial. It was always my favorite event to play. Uh, the reason being, I loved the golf course. I, I felt like you had to play it with such creativity and had to hit so many different types of shots and to me, it just fit my eye and, and I played it seemed to always play it pretty well. And, uh, it's, it's a big ballpark. It's got this big, you know, big tournament feel to it when you show up and it was very easy to get up for The crowds were always amazing. The golf course was in perfect shape and it just is, it's cool. Cause it's Jack's place. And, um, the, the, the locker room, I tell you, that is like one of the best locker rooms that we had all year just incredible that it was a place that the breakfast lunch and dinner like you could eat any meal there so that was unusual only a few events had that option 
and Memorial was one of them. So they treated you great. And then everybody always talks about the milkshakes, man. That was that made your bad rounds uh, manageable and your good rounds even better. Let's just go right to the milkshakes. Let's be honest. This is what the people want to hear about. Uh, just tell me, I have so many questions, but let's begin with, explain the milkshake itself. Is it a Buckeye milkshake, like a chocolate peanut butter type of thing? Yeah, that's normally what I would get. That was uh, the most popular selection. The other part of this that fascinates me is, because, is there are so many tour players, of course, that have these regimented diets and they're, you know, like JT's a great example coming into this year. I'm like, <laughs> He's gonna I'm, be I'm so mad. gluten-free, you know, I'll call this and that. Did you see guys that week who you knew to be very strict about diets say, you know what, I'll have like a milkshake or two because it's Jack's place. You know what, when I was playing, I didn't really ever hear about too many diets because typically tour players, they burn so many calories and nothing like a milkshake before a afternoon practice session after you play in the morning we would <laughs> go eat get a milkshake then go practice and or you know just when you finish your day you're just like all right how many milkshakes are we taken back to whoever <laughs> that's kind of how we finish our days it was it was uh they were amazing i love milkshakes so much and those milkshakes are 10 out of 10 you gotta love that uh back to the course a little bit it's jack's place and it's undergone a variety of different you know, changes renovations over the year and and jack has kind of termed it in 2020 was his last bite of the apple the last kind of renovation you know that he was going to do and you know did some a lot to you know the green complexes and some of the bunkering and so you know what do you make of this most recent set of changes he made in 2020 and the way the golf course plays now so I have talked to some players about the changes at uh, Muirfield, and I would say that they were, you know, kind of not their favorite renovations, and some of them were kind of confusing of why they made certain changes to certain holes. And um, I haven't seen it yet, so it's hard for me to give you my my opinion on it. But I know a lot of players have been a little confused by some of the changes, and just doesn't really make sense to them. So that's one thing. You have to wonder moving forward is if the golf course is frustrating for guys to play, is it going to continue to get this crazy good field that we continue to see, but it is Jack's place. It's a place that uh, so many people show up and get up for. Um, I do know that 16th hole. I, I always thought that one was so, so bad. <laughs> it was so firm and you could not hold that left side of the green. And when they put the pin, especially in the front, that right bunker was absolute jail. You couldn't do anything. So we were hitting shots that were couldn't hold the front of the green to the front pin. So you can't get it close to that pin. And if you did, you you really hit a heck of a shot. But then that left pin, you just you're trying to hit it as close to the edge of the water. I don't know what it's like now or what it looks like, but there's there's a lot of questionable shots out there now that i think guys wish it was just the original that is all for this episode of the smiley show we have a big interview hitting the feed on thursday that you will not want to miss and to get caught up before then head over now to download conversations with justin thomas sam burns and jake owen thanks for listening and see you then the smiley show is part of the sirius xm sports podcast network if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more Please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcast.